uncommon sense advice on your work life, your personal life, and God knows what else. Welcome to How to Do Life with Dr. Marty Nemco. Hi, I'm Marty Nemco. I go on these binges or jags of various activities, and one of them is writing short, short stories uh, that can be read in a minute, three minutes maybe. And I've put together a collection that are going to be in a book called Soloists, people who have mainly tried to go it alone. In my previous podcast and YouTube video, I uh, presented 10 of those uh, short, short stories. Here are 11 more. The first one's called A Morning Reverie. 5.43 a.m., too early to get up. So I counted backwards by two from 300, but got to 200 and was still awake. Then I tried thinking happy thoughts, my doggy who was pressed to my side, the coffee I'd have when I got up, and if I didn't weigh too much when I got on the scale, French toast, screw the carbs. That didn't work, so I tried to think of a pleasant childhood memory, but what came to mind wasn't pleasant, choosing sides for softball. You see, I was a pretty good athlete. I actually played baseball in high school, but as a kid, I wasn't liked. I'm still not sure why. So I dreaded when they were choosing sides. I didn't feel bad when I wasn't among the first picked. I wasn't sure how good I was compared with the best kids. But when most of the kids had been chosen and I was still standing there pounding my glove to seem like a ball player, I felt sad. Maybe I'm not that good a player, or maybe kids hate me so much that they'd rather have a worse player than me. Now, sure that I couldn't get back to sleep, my doggy sensed that and rolled on his back for a belly rub, which I gladly obliged. I thought about that coffee, got up, got on the scale, saw a good number, and looked ahead to French toast. That was called a morning reverie. This next short, short story is called a donut hole. I went to a new donut shop. The clerk was beautiful. When I left and opened the bag with my donut, I saw that she had thrown in a donut hole. No pretty women ever liked me. Is it possible that she, my once in a lifetime, did? Throughout the day, and yes, when I lay in bed, I thought about her. What would it be like to ask her out? To reach out my hand and she would take it. To have a long dinner together. For her to be in my bed. I returned the next day, and again there was a donut hole. I couldn't help fantasize about living with her, marrying her, spending the rest of my life with her. On the third day, I happened to order coffee to go with my donut, and it was serve yourself. As I was putting the sleeve around the paper cup, I noticed that unlike on the previous days, there were other customers in the store. I watched the clerk and in the bag of the first customer, along with his three donuts, she put in a donut hole. The second customer, a surly teen, also got a hole. And the third customer, a polite, handsome young man, got three. So that story is called Donut Hole. This next one is darker, and it's a real moral dilemma. For, for It has implications, I believe, for society. It's called should I kill him? 
Amid the desert islands, swaying palms, parrots, macaws, and toucans chirped. The peace was broken by a shriek, so I wandered through the jungle toward it. There, giggling as he strutted away with a bloody machete, was one of the island's few inhabitants. There probably are fewer than ten, yet I had never seen him before. I edged closer to see a toucan lying on the ground, suffering, his foot chopped off. Quietly, I followed the man and saw him do it again to another bird that had stopped to rest. He swaggered on and stopped along a stream and chopped a frog. I was too scared to confront him, but felt compelled to keep following. He walked along the stream, and when it widened into the river, there was a boy bending over, fixing a leak in his canoe. The man's machete raised. He crept toward the boy with his machete raised. What should I do? I also had a machete, although I had never used it on anything but thatch, and the last thing I thought I'd ever do was use it to hurt someone. But the man will probably try to maim or even kill the boy. Or maybe he wouldn't. Or maybe I could reason with the man. Should I try to fight it out with him? Or am I too likely to die or get maimed trying, and then both the boy and me would get would suffer? I guess boy and I would suffer. I thought of all the people who could have killed Hitler or Putin, for example, their lieutenants, who were always by the dictator's side. One shot to the head and millions of people would have been saved from suffering and death. On the other hand, it feels cosmically wrong to kill. So like those lieutenants, paralyzed by indecisiveness and fear, I just stood there. So that was uh, the story called, Should I Kill Him? The next one is called Lip Gloss. Julie and her mom, Natalie, were headed toward the Revlon display when Julie stopped at the Bonnie Bell lipstick rack. You're too young, Natalie said. Other girls wear it. I don't care about the other girls. You're 11. You don't want to look like a tramp. What's a tramp? Never mind. She pulled Julie away into the Revlon display where Natalie scrutinized the lipsticks with the focus of a diamond buyer. Blush and nude, bare affair. Julie got angrier seeing her mother bask in the rainbow of adornment. Julie thought, when she's distracted, and when Natalie was trying on nude fury, Julie tiptoed the few steps back to Bonnie Bell, stuffed a pink Minnie Mouse lip gloss into her pocket, and returned to her mom who was now on lipstick three, on the mauve. Natalie asked, how do I look? Just great, Mom. They paid. A man followed them out and said, stop, young lady, I need to see what's in your pocket. Natalie said, I, I didn't take anything, here's my receipt. Not you, lady, the kid. Natalie protested. Julie didn't do anything. Yeah, kid, show your mom what nothing you did. Shaking, Julie looked up at the man, hoping for a reprieve, but he was impassive, and so she took the lip gloss from her pocket. He said, you're lucky we don't prosecute for under 25 bucks, but mom, you better deal with her, and he strode away. But Julie got a surprise. Her mom hugged her and said, 
When I was your age, I did the same thing. Well, not exactly. It was a different color. So that story was lip gloss. The next one is called Adrenaline. It's unclear how I got addicted to adrenaline. I only know I did, and early. I would see how much I could tease kids without getting my head bashed in. In class, I would tilt my chair back as far as I could without falling over. I didn't always succeed. After school, against the rules, I'd sneak into the gym so I could practice basketball on rims that had nets. I loved the swish sound. I feel far more guilty that, as a teenager, my addiction to adrenaline made me want to, quote, get girls, and after I did, the adrenaline rush was gone, and I moved on to the next girl. Bad, bad. Gambling took my adrenaline addiction to another level. I lost a lot, but couldn't quit because I so loved the rush. To make myself feel better afterwards, I'd, quote, compensate by shoplifting another adrenaline rush. In college, I drove a taxi, fast, not to get people to their destination quickly so I'd get a bigger tip. It was for the adrenaline rush. No surprise, after college, I sought out and got a job as a bond trader, non-stop adrenaline. If I place that buy order just enough below the market price, can I get it? If not, and the price goes up, my client will kill me. I made dozens of trades a day. It was like intravenous adrenaline. After work, unlike a normal person, I didn't unwind. I played adrenalizing video games and with my few friends argued, or the nicer word, debated. I was aware that I created more heat than light, but it was another adrenaline rush. And all went pretty well until I was 52. Ironically, I was doing one of my few non-adrenalizing activities, a jigsaw puzzle. That's when I got my heart attack, fortunately a mild one. Like most heart attack victims, I was scared straight for a while, but soon returned to my old ways. Why? I was aware that my adrenaline addiction contributed to my getting an early heart attack, and I knew that it had hurt me professionally and personally. Errors at work caused by rushing, angering colleagues with my brinksmanship, turning off quality friends, romantic and platonic, yet I loved adrenaline's energizing effect and felt, perhaps rationalized, that it made me productive, contributory, and I believe that the life well-led is heavily about being productive. My rational self knows I'll be productive for longer if I don't get another heart attack, but it's tough to quit my adrenaline addiction. I keep telling myself to try to stay vigilant to adrenalizing, but the odds makers would lay five to one against me. It's crazy. I say I love life, yet I'm killing myself. Okay, I'm gonna take a brief break, just a few seconds, so the announcer can do her thing. And then I've got a few more stories that I hope you will like, and I hope you'll stay with me. You're listening to How to Do Life with career and personal coach, Dr. Marty Nemco. If you'd like to work with him, email him a description of your situation, mnemco at comcast.net. That's M-N-E-M-K-O at comcast.net. Marty is pleased if you choose to subscribe to this podcast. If you're not listening to this on Simplecast, just go to how-to-life.simplecast and click on listen and subscribe. Thank you for staying with me. The next short, short story is called Cool. 
I was studying the Prada store window and must admit I looked like the type. Ray-Ban sunglasses, Gucci shoes, natty bow tie. An old hippie said, you're wasting your money and probably your life. I acted like I dismissed him, but couldn't. When I got home, I got undressed. I stared at my Rolex, my Faconobli shirt in this Caesar's color, aubergine, Ferragamo bow tie, Versace underwear. I thought, there's probably just one little guy in some room in Paris who every year spins a color wheel and where it stops, that's the Caesar's color. In New York, another one says, wider cuffs last year, narrow this year. All that thinking was making me feel uncomfortable. So I took out my practice sheet. I thought you might like to see it. Shoulders back, shoulders even, chin up 20 degrees, back straight, that winning smile, voice at the bottom of my range, but not gravelly, modest use of hand gestures, hair slightly tousled with that curlicue in front. I practiced in the mirror as I do every day, but this time the hippie's words kept intruding. I couldn't escape. He's right. It's what everyone says. My professors, the newscasters, even my minister. Hipsters are idiots. I'm an idiot. I felt I had to purge myself. So before I could change my mind, I took all my clothes that weren't like basic t-shirts and threw them into the fireplace. I wish I could tell you that I stayed with the program, but it wasn't three days until I was back on Rodeo Drive with my credit card ready to go. That story was called Cool. This next one is called The Hypochondriac. Get out. Get the fuck out. I don't want to see your fat ass again. Derek's foster mother had caught him stealing $20 from her wallet, and it wasn't the first time. The agency couldn't find him another foster home, understandably. Would you want a obese 16-year-old who was kicked out of his foster home for stealing? So Derek ended up in a group home with kids far tougher than he is, was. Yes, he had stolen occasionally, and yes, he played lineman for his high school football team, but he was a gentle giant. He wasn't as aggressive as the other football players, so despite exhortations from his coach to get serious, it just wasn't in him. One of the counselors at the group home, grandmotherly Serena, recognized that and listened to Derek, talked with him, once even gave him a neck massage. He said, biting his lip to avoid tearing up, no one ever touched me before except to hit me. Their conversations deepened, with Derek revealing that he was terrified of getting sick and of the pain of dying and death. He admitted that every time he got a pain of ambiguous origin, he catastrophized it being cancer or stroke and so on. Even in the absence of a, quote, symptom, his hypervigilance to possible disease tamped his already sad demeanor. Well-intentioned, but ultimately hurtful, Serena encouraged him to see the nurse even when Serena was sure it was nothing. Serena thought that would be reassuring, but it only legitimated Derek's concerns. Serena didn't mention that she too had worrisome symptoms, but scared of what it might be, didn't go to the doctor. Serena and Derek became close enough that the supervisor warned her to keep her distance. The warning wasn't necessary. Serena soon was diagnosed with stage four cancer and despite quote heroic and painful and expensive measures, she died. Derek was of course bereft 
and his hypochondria got worse, his hands often shaking. When Derek turned 18, he was no longer eligible to be in the foster care system and so had to figure out how to make it on his own. He decided that, that with his physical strength and wanting to be a near medical care in case of an emergency, he would apply for jobs in hospitals as a transporter. He was hired almost immediately because it was a job that few people wanted, often having to move very sick, sometimes groaning heavy people onto and off of a gurney. Watching doctors in the trenches made Derek fall in love with the concept of doctor, and he decided to try to marry one. That way he'd have medical care very close. So he'd stand a little closer than standard to an attractive doctor, but the reaction was invariably negative. The physician would step back, look away, and quickly excuse herself. Derek continued doing his job, but after a few months, wrenched his back, lifting a 250-pound comatose man. Derek was sent to a physician for evaluation and then to a physician assistant, Bonnie, for follow-ups. Bonnie was less rushed than most doctors, and while she was almost as heavy as Derek, he found her attractive. When he asked if she wanted to have coffee with him in the break room, he was surprised that she said yes. Just a month later, he asked to marry her. Her answer was also a surprise. You don't want to marry me. I have a kidney disease, and the doctors say I probably won't live two years. He flashed on the possibility of only briefly having medical care very close, but dismissed that and said, I still want to marry you. I love you. So that's that story um, um, called The Hypochondriac. The next story is called Ugly. I am so lucky. Happy bus came to my village and they did my cleft palate surgery. They didn't tell me that to look and speak normally, I'd need about 10 more surgeries. My luck came when an American family chose to adopt me and bring me to America, even though I looked and talked funny. And they got me all the surgeries that the insurance would cover, but I still don't look or sound quite right. Now I'm in high school. I've tried a lot of things to be liked. Even though I'm self-conscious, when I walk down the halls, I try to look up and even sometimes force a smile. When I think I'm not speaking clearly, I apologize and ask if they'd like me to try again. But it hasn't worked. The kids are polite, but that's it. I wasn't treated differently from other unattractive kids, but being shunned because of looks seemed wrong. So I thought about running for student council on an anti-lookist platform. I even thought about getting a t-shirt that said, do you really want to be lookist? But I wasn't brave enough for all that. Finally, I got an idea. I'd try out to be a cheerleader. Cheerleading is for the pretty people. And just maybe if I could get on the team, it could show that you don't have to be good looking even to be a cheerleader. But when I asked the cheerleading teacher, Mrs. Lowood, she said, of course you can try out, but it takes a lot to be a cheerleader, especially on our team. We've won many awards. I got the sense she didn't want me. She didn't want to seem that way. So she said, I'll consider you if you can learn to do an aerial. I didn't even know what an aerial was, but when I found out, I was sure that she didn't want me. It's gymnastics toughest stunt. It's a cartwheel without your hands ever touching the ground. But my mother said, Hari, you're athletic, you can do it. She's a go-getter. So she got right on the computer and searched for one-on-one -on -one coaches. And she found a former top college gymnastics coach who was taking beginners.
My mother said, that's odd that such a person would take beginners. She called, and the coach, Mary Bellinger, explained. I got, well, too friendly with one of my players, and I was fired. My mom asked, can we trust you to not be too friendly with my son? Her answer, I'm a lesbian, but even if your child were a girl, I have more than learned my lesson. Mary worked me hard, but I tried to do even more than she asked. At first, the cheerleaders practicing on the other side of the gym didn't pay attention to me because I was only working on basics, a headstand and forward roll. But when one day I was working on a round off, which is the last step before an aerial, I think they got nervous. They didn't want a cleft palate on their award-winning cheerleading team. So the head cheerleader, Missy, snuck over to me and whispered, Halloween Harry trying to go out to be a cheerleader, huh? Halloween Harry? And she pranced away. The cheerleaders may have gotten even more nervous when they saw me making progress on the aerial. Finally, Mary said I was ready, and I walked into cheerleading practice a few minutes before it was to begin. Mrs. Lowood seemed surprised. She had assumed she had stopped me by saying that I'd need to do an aerial before even trying out. But speaking evenly, she asked, can you do an aerial? I nodded and she said, okay, the cheerleaders are here for practice, but I suppose you could do it for them. I got nervous and even more so when Missy smirked at me. I took a deep breath. My takeoff was okay and I kept my legs perfectly straight just as Mary had taught me. But at the top of my aerial, the hardest part, I guess my nervousness distracted me for just a moment and I fell. The pain was bad, but I was able to keep it in, even when they put me on the stretcher. No, I couldn't recover fast enough to ever try out again, but the principal asked me to give a speech at graduation, and here is what I said. My parents wanted me to tell you that trying for cheerleaders struck a blow against lookism, but that's not what I want to say. I want to say that you, me, everyone has had bad experiences, sometimes embarrassing failures. If my accident has had any good side, it's to remind us that whatever crap has happened to us, you might want to stop looking forward, looking back, and just take the next step forward, maybe even do an aerial. So, uh, that short story is called Ugly. Short, short story. The next one's called Potential. It wasn't until I was 70 that it happened. It was a random moment I was planting a tomato when I couldn't get the truth out of my mind. It's not acceptable even to think it. I'm a genius who was not allowed to make the big difference I feel I could have made. Despite being a child of immigrants and growing up in a slum, I was reading on the fifth grade level in the first grade. My IQ was 150. I was admitted to Stuyvesant High School and then Harvard undergraduate and Stanford for my PhD. Way back in 1974, my undergraduate senior project showed that toll booths should be replaced by drive-through toll paying, saving millions of drivers lots of time and preventing immense pollution, all those cars idling. But although I wrote a detailed proposal to the Transportation Commission in New York, Philadelphia, Chicago, Los Angeles, and San Francisco, I never even got a response. My PhD dissertation demonstrated that the laws of genetics don't get suspended when it comes to human intelligence. It was among the first to show that like most characteristics, not just in humankind, 
but across the animal and plant kingdoms, genes and environment matter roughly equally. It's funny, the parts that my professor seemed to like best were the three lines that weren't academically rigorous. First was, no poodle and pit bull breeder could claim that the average difference in the two breeds was all environment. The second statement was that every mother knows, even in utero, that their babies start out with different personalities. The third statement, fighting the achievement gap just by changing environment is like fighting a boxer with one arm tied behind your back. Although my thesis won dissertation of the year, no mainstream media would publish the results. I submitted it to 11, 10 no responses and one that said, we're concerned it could be perceived as racist. When the COVID pandemic began, I wrote an article contending that we should, with clear eyes, evaluate the wisdom of allowing natural immunity to occur rather than lock down society. The article raised the possibility that more deaths might be prevented and economic and psychological costs reduced. The article also provided data to indicate that lockdowns restrict people's getting the micro exposures that we all get to various pathogens, which trigger immune responses and thus prevent serious illness. Unfortunately, someone used social media and letters to my wife's employer, claiming that I was a COVID denier and a death monger. My wife, understandably afraid of losing her job, begged me to pull down the article, and I did. I still have much I could contribute, but have become pretty inert. Maybe a little of it is my age, but more is that I'm scared that yet again I'll get the three C's, censured, censored, and canceled. I feel like a boxer who's gotten knocked down the first nine rounds. It's hard to motivate myself to come out for my tenth and final one. So here I am in my garden. So uh, that short, short story is called Potential. The next one is called a compliant husband. Joe didn't want a 50th birthday party. After his last guest left, his wife wanted to rub in that she was right. So didn't you have a good time? Joe still was, would rather have just gone out to dinner, but afraid of his wife forced, I guess, did you have a good time? Of course, and I knew you would too, she replied. Joe escaped to his garden, one of the few places he retained agency. He could grow what he wanted, where he wanted, and with much, as much TLC as he wanted. Then there was the bathroom. He liked brushing his teeth while reading from a book of quotations while on the pot. If his wife knew, she'd say, really, Joe? His intimidating marriage continued for decades until he got his stage four cancer diagnosis. Joe still couldn't muster the courage to speak up to his wife. The best he could do was sign up for a two minute stint at a comedy club's open mic night. On the sign-up sheet, he signed his name, Joe Blow. This was his two minutes, delivered in a ha-ha voice. Do you think this is funny? My wife doesn't know squat about computers, but got hired. I know a lot about computers, and again and again, I see women and minorities getting hired who are less competent, less hardworking, while I plant turnips. Isn't that funny? Someone in the audience called out. You got to give women and minorities a chance. Haven't you ever heard of white male privilege? Joe flashed on his cancer to find the courage to continue. Maybe you'll think this is funnier. In nearly every commercial, every show, every movie, white males are portrayed as evil or fools, shown the way by a minority or woman, usually both, and... The heckler yelled, It's time to level the playing field. Racist. 
sexist, reparations now. A few in the audience joined in. Reparations now, reparations now. Joe said, now I want to talk about something really funny. Cancer. When women and minorities are underrepresented, say in engineering, there's been billions of dollars of funding, but when men have the ultimate deficit, we live five years shorter, dying earlier of all 10 of the top 10 causes of death. That's me soon. I have cancer. There are 4.4 widows for every widower, and yet all we see is another run for breast. And the tech heckler turned to the audience. This open mic night isn't that open. Let's go. And he and another person stormed the stage, whereupon Joe whipped out a pistol, pointed it at them, and they retreated. Joe put the gun in his mouth and pulled the trigger. So, okay, that story was called The Compliant Husband. The next story is called The Giveaway, and it's the last one. I'm at the age when if you have enough money, it's time to give it away. I wouldn't leave a penny to my ex-wife nor to our ne'er-do-well miscreant kid. So I started on a quest to figure out how to give charity so it yields maximum bang for the buck. Bill Gates is right. It's not easy to give money away. A friend told me to give to a charity that helps those with the greatest deficit, but I rejected that. I felt I'd rather fund people with greater potential for ripple effect, like a mentoring program for low-income gifted kids. But while the school district insisted that my money would be used for that, when I followed up, my money ended up going to low achievers. I had later learned that that kind of, quote, mission creep is not unusual. So I taped $10,000 bills onto a folding card table and set it up in front of MIT's genetics building. I believe genetics will cure lots of diseases. I attached a poster to the table. If you could well use $1,000 to do genomic research to help cure a disease, tell me about it. I was surprised. There was no massive line of students or faculty wanting to make their case true or BS. And most of those who asked seemed more likely to generate benefit than if I had, for example, donated to some mega charity. It did take me two afternoons, and the $10,000 wasn't tax deductible, but I felt good about it. I planned to do the same thing at Harvard and then fly to California to do it at Caltech and Stanford. I hate being old, but this helps a bit. <laughs> These were uh, some short, short stories from my forthcoming book, Soloists. I welcome your thumbs up and accept your thumbs down. And I am flattered if you choose to subscribe to my channel, whether on YouTube or uh, the podcast, which is available on uh, Apple iTunes as well as Spotify. And I'd like to end all my podcasts with this quote from Frank A. Clark. We find comfort among those who agree with us, growth among those who don't. You've been listening to How to Do Life with Dr. Marty Nemco. For comments on the show or to consult with Dr. Marty Nemko, his email address is mnemko at comcast.net. Post-production of How to Do Life by Terry Rouse. Music by Blue Dot Session. Thanks for listening.